Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all very much for coming. We really are way past standing room only. We, thank you all so much for joining us for this very packed event. Um, I'm Gemma Tetlow, I'm Chief Economist at the Institute for Government. I'll be chairing today's event, and we're really delighted to be running this event with Imperial College London to discuss how can science and innovation support an ambitious plan for economic growth. The government has recently reaffirmed its ambition to be a science and technology superpower and set up the new Department for Science, Innovation and Technology dedicated to that task. So our focus for the next hour is really to discuss what are the priorities for government in this area, what's possible um, and how can that be realised. And to explore these issues, I'm delighted to be joined by four expert panellists to talk to a range of perspectives on this. So on my immediate right, we have George Freeman, MP, who has been MP for Mid-Norfolk since 2010 and is Minister of State for Science, Research and Innovation. On my far left, we have Professor Nigel Brandon, who's Dean of the Faculty of Engineering at Imperial College London. On my right, we have Catherine Bennett, who is the CEO of the High Value Manufacturing Catapult. And on my far right, uh, we have one of my colleagues, senior fellow at the Institute for Government, Giles Wilkes, um, who has advised governments in the past um, and uh, now works with a range of people uh, thinking about these questions of growth and innovation. Um, we will be live tweeting this event from at IFG events using the hashtags, hashtag IFGCon23 and also hashtag CPC23. So please do follow and tweet along if you're into that sort of thing. Um, but without further ado, uh, George, let me come to you to start off on this. How can science and innovation contribute to UK economic growth and how can government best facilitate that? Well, thank you. It's a great question. It's great to see the Institute for Government here. I don't know how many people are aware of the work of the Institute for Government. I was lucky enough to be on your advisory board for a while. It's a, it's a really phenomenal powerhouse of deep independent work around how government works, how it could work, should work, comparative studies. If you haven't looked at the website, I don't know how many people are there working? Uh, about 50. Yeah, it's 50 people think tank dedicated to making government work better. So thank you for, uh, for this and for getting us all together. Um, I just want to describe what the mission is uh, and then share three things that keep me awake at night. Uh, challenges and obstacles and keen to learn from some of the people in here. Um, so I was joking with David Willits last night. My first conference was 1990 and um, well, that was quite a historic autumn. And David Willits laughed and said his first was 1976. Um, and I just observed that in the 13 years since I've been in Parliament um, and in the 30 years since I've been coming to conferences, uh, I want to suggest that this party has come a long way in being a party of science, research, technology and innovation. Some of it um, has happened while we were creating the frameworks for markets to work and the enterprise and innovation revolution of the 80s. Um, it's happened, but we didn't determine that it should happen. And then in the last 10 or 15 years, I think we've become a much more hands-on government for trying to direct, shape, steer, catalyze the innovation economy for uh, a whole series of local, national and international purposes. But if you asked me 13 years ago, do you think that in 13 years, science and technology will be absolutely paragraph one of the integrated review? The integrated review is the government software that sets out our vision of Britain's place in the world post-Brexit and geopolitically. First paragraph is we see ourselves as a science, research, technology and innovation economy. Um, so it's not just me and David Willits and one or two others, it's mainstream now, hardwired literally into the government operating software. Um, do you think we will have established a department for science, technology and innovation? Do you think we'll have moved this economy from 1.4% of GDP and R&D to 3, 2.9? Uh, do you think we will have uh, not one science minister, but five science and technology ministers? Uh, do you think we'll be overseeing the biggest uplift in R&D funding for a generation at a time of cost of living crisis. Do you think we'll be ranked fourth in the Global Innovation Index? I wouldn't have thought so. We were staring down the barrel of some really difficult post-crash austerity and I think trapped in a cycle of boom and bust economics which drives boom and bust politics. And I've been making the case to Prime Ministers as they've come and gone that the only way we will get this economy and this country uh, and dare I say it, this party into a place where it commands much 
deeper, wider, broader support is by shifting the economic model to one in which this country uh, embraces a genuine role as a global powerhouse of research, science, R&D, technology innovation for the global challenges we face as a soft power. And uh, it's far from finished. In fact, we're just starting. This spring, we set out a 10-year framework for the new department, the S&T framework, to deliver this. But I just want to just remind you all of the opportunity. I genuinely think if we get this right, given the global appetite for technology and agri-tech, we've got to double world food production in the next 26 years on the same land area with half as much energy and water. We've got to clean up the oceans. We've got to drive a massive industrial transition to net zero. We've got to tackle global pandemics. There's a wall of money out there for science and technology. This country has it, but we've been running a service economy for 40 years. And our membership of the EU, although I didn't vote for Brexit, our membership of the EU did accelerate the servicification of the UK economy. This is an extraordinary opportunity for us to attract much more global R&D, unleash the genius and the power of UK entrepreneurship and innovation all around the country. When we get it right, I think we'll be telling our grandchildren, you had to be there. We had a horrendous decade, two crashes, political turmoil, disruption, five prime ministers in five months. Uh, and then we settled down and went out into the world, one foot in Europe, not in the European Political and Monetary Union, but a regulatory testbed pathway into the European economies, one foot around the rest of the world, convening nations, and we drove massive global investment into Little Britain R&D and exported technology all around the world. So that, I think, is the opportunity. It's what we've set up the department to do, and it's what I'm proud to be the Minister of State for. I think there are, I was asked in the US in summer, what are the things that keep me awake at night? And I really like, particularly with the Institute of Government, to focus on what I think are the big, there are many, but really big barriers. One is Whitehall's ability to move at pace with the entrepreneurship, agility, and um, flexibility to move at the pace at which these technologies are moving in every field, but nowhere more than in regulation. It's a huge challenge. We did it in the pandemic. We had to break all the rules. We had to, had to have an emergency to get the urgency into the machine. We all now want to capture that. How you do it is a big challenge. And one of the things we're doing in creating DCIT as the Department of Science, Innovation, Technology is try to create a different sort of department. So for example, we're looking at, could we get 20, 25% of staff to be from the science and technology sector in the department seconded and 25% of our civil servants nearly all good, hardworking, honest people, but uh, I was in technology venture capital 15 years and I'm well out of date. So if you haven't been immersed in the sector, it's quite difficult. So can we make it the most exciting department to work in because you get embedded in the sector and you, you're much more aware of what's going on? So that's one way, but we also have to be much quicker. We need to build digital regulatory frameworks. It's no good asking the Law Commission to write an essay about autonomous vehicles five years later deciding we'll frame a bill, three years later introducing it to Parliament, four years later putting it on the statute books, the technology you were regulating would have gone out of, out of um, fashion by then. Technology cycles are so quick. So we really have to build a more agile, digital, uh, entrepreneurial Whitehall. Secondly, um, I really worry about skills. Uh, I'm focusing heavily on these R&D clusters all around the country from Glasgow Satellite City, Edinburgh Supercross Computing, Animal Health, Newcastle Data City, Leeds Digital Health, Bio, Yorkshire, Sheffield Advanced Manufacturing, Norwich Agritech. Uh, I could go around the country. There's about 25, 30. We're digitally mapping them. And in those centres, there is still a disconnect, I think, between the incredible job creation of the most innovative companies and the local skills framework. It's great in some places. Uh, Warwick is doing really well, Northumbria. University in Newcastle are doing really well, but there are places where there's just a massive gap. And that is a big problem, because these innovative sectors are going to need about 100,000, 200,000 new jobs. And we need to be training our people to have them, or else we'll just shift the immigration crisis to another generation. So there's a huge skills bit. And thirdly, uh, I think there's a huge uh, devolution challenge here. Uh, Leveling up, to me, is about harnessing the genius of the innovation economy to drive an R&D economy, not a research economy, an R&D economy all around the country by connecting the deep science to the uh, supply chains, to advanced manufacturing in every sector, in space, in life science, in agri-tech. I used to run companies in Cambridge. If you ever got to the point where we actually made a box, made something digital and smart with hinges that worked, and no one in Cambridge really does that. You just sell the IP. But up here, 
in the northeast, in the northwest, in Manchester, in the northern powerhouse, eight universities, the NLF, this huge engineering legacy and micro advanced manufacturing. So in order to unlock that, I think we really have to shift the paradigm from minister announces in London, officials set out a framework in London and the poor regional clusters have to run around working out which pipes and money might come out of, to think much more seriously about these clusters, map them digitally, monitor them, talk to them differently and find out what's holding them back. And it might be we haven't built the motorway, we haven't built the bypass, it might be there isn't enough venture capital, but it won't be the same everywhere. That's a huge challenge for Whitehall. As you know, we love to frame the problem simply, set out a set of initiatives um, and move on. And you can't do that in the innovation economy. And I, so those are my three big challenges. Whitehall, agility to stay in touch, skills, and our ability to really devolve. And if I was in the treasury, I would say there is no such thing as the economy, to coin a famous previous leader is often misquoted, she went on to say, only the components of that society, families, communities, individuals, people. And I would say there's no such thing as the economy in the treasury. There are thousands of economies, microeconomies all around the country. If we get them to grow, particularly these 30 R&D clusters, they'll drive this economy from 3% of R&D into 3 3.6, 3.7, which will put us in the global top 10. And that will drive prosperity for the next generation. Thank you very much. Nigel, coming to you next. How do universities fit into this? How do they contribute to making us a science technology superpower? And what do they need from government to really achieve that potential? Yeah, thank you very much for the question. So, so as someone comes from a London-based academic institution, I think that I would also be perhaps make a comment on how, how those of us down in the southeast can contribute to wealth creation up, up here in the northwest and elsewhere. But let me make a general comment first, which is I think um, you know research-intensive universities, um, and the UK is very fortunate to retain and still have a number of truly world-class research-intensive universities, and, and as you say, Minister, across uh, widely distributed across 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 the uh, country, no, in, and in all in the, and in all parts of um, Scotland, Wales, and, and Northern Ireland as well. Um, so, you know, we're very fortunate in the academic sector to have the the luxury of taking a longer-term view, and that gives us the opportunity, and indeed, I think, the imperative to develop the new knowledge and skills that will underpin. The, in the, the, the growth in the industries that will come in the future, as well as support, of course, industry in uh, developing and rolling out the technologies of today. Um, so if I just look at my own institution, uh, the, in the last five years, we've created businesses from both our academic body, but also our student body. And increasingly, I think you're seeing students absolutely passionate about getting involved in this type of endeavor, uh, which have attracted 600 million pounds of investment They've created and supported close to 6,000 jobs. So you know that, that's just a cluster, um, in this case, a sort of West, a West London cluster, if you like, out of Imperial. Um, uh, and if we look uh, back, I mean, I was involved myself in, in founding a company some 20 years ago. That's now um, the most valuable uh, pure play deep tech company in the FTSE 250. That's taken 20 years, but you know, it does take time. Uh, you know, we've got students founding uh, things like Pure Affinity, which is a water treatment company. And that's building a manufacturing plant near Middlesbrough. So I think you can look uh, at how these things can interact and so on. In terms of um, what, what government can do, I think let's say the most obvious thing first, which is you know, a commitment to a sustained investment. And uh, uh, Minister, we're very grateful for the efforts that you have put in and your department have put in uh, and the government have put in to maintaining the R&D investment, as you've mentioned, under challenging fiscal circumstances. Um, I think it's, it's really important that that level of commitment is sustained. I think it's not only about the amount of money, it's also about how that money is deployed. Um, You've you talked to kind of regional dimension, but I'd also talk about the kind of longevity of support so that initiatives are maintained over time and there isn't a sort of flipping from one thing to another. Uh, and certainly if we, if we aspire to be a research uh, science superpower, we have to have the commensurate level of investment in science. Um, the other thing I'd say is about talent. Um, you can't do great science without great people, and you can't do great innovation without great people. So access to a pipeline of talent, that's both from within the country. Um, one of the challenges in, uh, so I work at a STEM B institution, so we, we, we're, we're only really here discussing science, engineering, medicine, and business from my perspective. Um, and we have to have the right pipeline of talent, of the right motivation quality to enter um, 
and, and, and benefit from the skills and so on that we can impart. So that's about, for us, maths education. And if you don't know, we're already working to open a maths school in North London because the provision of adequately qualified maths 18-year-olds is key to a STEM B uh, pipeline. But of course, it's not only about home students, it's also about a pipeline of international talent. And so attracting the very best people to the university sector from all over the world, both as students and as, and as staff, it is absolutely uh, imperative. There is, a, there is a global sort of competition for talent, uh, and we have to uh, play a role in that. And then finally, I just make one point, which is about um, uh, internationalization. Um, science is an international business, um, and so we have to have means of collaborating internationally, and we need to make certain that uh, we can do that within our, our own, my own institution. Over half our publications and papers are with an international co-author from 192 countries at the current count. So it's a very much a global business. Um, just to, just on briefly on the place agenda, as, as you as you mentioned, uh, as you raised it. Um, if, you're, if you're not aware, we're actually opening a medical school in partnership with the University of Cumbria at the moment, so we're very pleased to be doing that. Um, and I was here last week actually uh, chairing the Greater Manchester Electrochemical Hydrogen Cluster. There's of course a huge amount of work going on in here in the northwest in that space. I, I absolutely agree with you that um, we need to focus our work and our innovation in the places where it can make a difference. Um, it does not mean that those of us in London cannot contribute to that agenda. I just want to be very clear about that. And we're very keen to do that in partnership with others, but thank you very much. Thanks, Nigel. Catherine, coming to you, what success has there been in translating the UK's science strengths that Nigel set out into economic growth? Um, and what more is needed, if anything, from the government to sort of facilitate? Well, I could bore you for an hour about some amazing stories from my catapult, but I just wanted to build on what George said. It's just fantastic to have five science ministers. And I dug out a quote from the Prime Minister when he made that announcement about the new department, that we need to make sure this is the country where innovation is happening fastest. And that's really what the catapult that I have the honour of leading is all about, helping innovation move fast. So if I just do a very quick advert about us, because I'm not sure people really know what a catapult is. So we were founded um, in 2011 and uh, supported completely by Innovate UK. And we're seven centres of innovation across the UK, 25 sites. And we are very proud to say we represent one of the largest advanced manufacturing capabilities in Europe. And, you know, we compete in the world as well. And we're all about de-risking innovation, which, of course, is important when you come to the translation question. There are also eight other catapults and we work with them very closely and the government's encouraging us to do that even more. So since 2011, in terms of things that we've achieved, we've worked with 26,000 companies, over half of them being from SMEs, which is a key. We've got 4,000 people based around our universities, many great centres around the UK. And we like to talk about, it's wonderful to be here with Imperial today, actually. I asked my team for a briefing on what we do with Imperial. I was just saying to Nigel, I got this long email back. It's incredible to hear the stories about how we work with universities. So the other thing we like to say about the catapult I have the honour of leading is that we're the temperature gauge of manufacturing. We've, we can pick up what our business partners are telling us and also that helps us build on a focus for future needs. So in terms of the question about translation, let me just give you a few examples. So our nuclear centre in Rotherham, part of the AMRC organisation with the Sheffield University, have worked recently with a company called Cavendish Nuclear on new technology to identify defects. Now this is really important in terms of the energy challenge our country has. That's one example of translation and that company is happy for us to use that technology to help other companies. Another organisation I have to mention, the National Composite Centre in Bristol, I see two colleagues here from the University of Bristol, had an incredible announcement two weeks ago about the supercomputer funding from DSIT, the Isambard project, £200 million investment into that project, so we completely can be at the vanguard, so of course that will help with translation as well. Now, just one point to make, and the other, my other colleagues from other catapults would say this as well, the UK has been recognised for many years as a global leader in research, and we, you know, we're second to none in many areas, and George and Nigel have just mentioned some of those. But perhaps for too long, 
we've had a maybe a reputation for allowing the commercialization of that to be lost. Um, so we're great at the ideas, we're great at the innovation, we're great at the testing and the development, but maybe how do we turn that into commercial reality? So amongst the uh, 25 sites, the 4,000 employees I have at my catapult, there's so much more we think we could be doing. We're very pleased with the huge investment and the vote of confidence in the catapult concept. And there may be more news on that to come, I understand. But, you know, there's more that to be done. My seven centres, quite disparate. Some have got longer histories than others, and they're very well embedded into their communities. So we certainly did levelling up before it maybe was even a term. Um, but what we've endeavoured to do across those seven organisations is work together on four what we call wicked problems. I'm loving all these expressions I'm finding out in the innovation area. One of which is net zero sustainability. Second, supply chain transformation and resilience. Thirdly, digitalization. And fourthly, critical national infrastructure. So there's my advert over for the catapult. And come and talk to myself or colleagues who are here today if you want to hear more. But we do feel that we can play a strong role. Um, I came from industry, worked in aerospace, and then previously in automotive. I mean, half of our employees have a similar background. The other half are all from universities. So we can help businesses on that journey of de-risking innovation and the translation part of that is part of the story. Thank you. <laughs> and Giles, finally coming to you, mm. there have been numerous governments over the years that have had various initiatives around science, innovation and growth. What do you think we should learn from that? Have we learned the lessons from that history of what works and what doesn't? Uh, what a history it's been. Um, thank you very much, Gem. Um, I would say the, not saying it just because Catherine is here, but the best example of a really successful policy has been the catapult policy. And I, I want to sort of reach that conclusion by a series of logical steps, if you like. But, um, but first of all, I mean, I would say there, there are plenty of great successes and I will name some of them and not just because they might be associated with George or even myself from the time in Theresa May's, but because I think they stand up objectively. But I would say if there was one thing that's really important for innovation policy, the one sort of concept that matters most of all, it is openness. There's no such thing as a country that gets to the frontier of science and becomes the most advanced country in the world by being a closed hermit kingdom. As, as was it 192 collaborators on a single paper? We often hear about institutes that have 90 or so nationalities. All of innovation is about the blending of ideas across places and the interplay of them. So one of the best things that's happened in the, in the last few years has been the phenomenal work that I know George put into um, getting back into Horizon. You do not become a science superpower just sitting there in your laboratory hoping that inspiration is going to strike. You need to be involved and you need to be connected with other people. So a big tick to Horizon. And um, the most important fact also about innovation is the beneficiary of innovation, it's great to talk about commercialization, to be the inventor, to be the Sergey Brin who comes out with a Google search engine and makes an absolute phenomenal equity market killing. Innovation is really shows its benefits in the use. In fact, there is a, there's a, a scientific result on this. A, 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 um, an economist called William Nordhaus, I believe, established that 98% of the value of a really good innovation comes from the people using it, not just the guy inventing it and getting the patent rights and getting to float a company. It's all of us using Google search or internet streaming or the combustion engine rather than Mr. Mercedes or Mr. Benz. So we need to focus on that. And this is where... It's really important that the country as a whole has incredible absorptive capacity. The value of R&D is not necessarily that you get onto this slightly flawed linear model that you invent something, you commercialize it, you, you find an angel investor, you find a venture capitalist, you end up making a killing. That'd be great and we should be doing that better. And it's a sign that something's wrong that we haven't done it better. But it is in finding other ways of using it and it being spread about through things. So. We need to focus more on that absorptive capacity because I think as a country we're quite bad at using great inventions. And the frustration you hear when people who are familiar with both here and say Germany is that it's so much harder to sell into our small business um, environment the latest and the best ideas for improving productivity. And that is where our problems are, this long tail of low productivity company. Uh, company. So the second thing, and I think this has been echoed a lot, including in that wonderful phrase, wicked problems. Mm -hmm. I think we've done really well by going after deep, big, challenge-based um, policy. I think that's really important. You sometimes will hear it called mission-based. We had the grand challenges under the Theresa May administration. But the, another concept that isn't discussed enough in the sort of supply-side dominated conversation about innovation is demand. 
you need to know that there's a gigantic demand for what you're producing. And that gigantic demand is what is ultimately going to fuel and repay the finance that goes in at the beginning. The most obvious one, of course, is net zero. And I think this government has done really well in trying to align levers there. But thinking in challenge terms as well means thinking about the whole ecosystem. Again, we heard really smart comments about how we need to have the skill system correct. If you, don't, if you just focus on the R&D piece and not on all of the ecosystem, you're not going to get things right. And this also means, and normally business ministers come in, they say how pro-market they are and this is, and they don't believe in picking winners. Actually, you do need to have a little choice making. Call it picking winners if you like, but we are 2% of the world economy, 1% of the population. We cannot, like the United States, be across the whole piece like Bidenomics might intend to be. We have to choose where we're good at. And that means making bets and sticking at them. And this is why I come to the last point, sticking at things. The great thing about the catapult system is it's lasted. Um, the, the institution of, um, that Catherine's in charge of dates back to 2011 in the term catapult. I remember the, the argument with Vince Cable about whether we should use the phrase because everyone thought it sounded a bit weird. We can um, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we won that one in the end. But um, it, it, actually, you have quite, you have predecessor organisations that were folded into you that have really lasted and you really need that. It's so frustrating for business not knowing who to deal with. And the catapult, I would say, is the ideal epitome of all this. It connects things. It connects business and academia. Um, but it's, it's, it's lasting. And it's a commitment from the government to be really into this space. So whenever I meet a catapult chair, I, I ask, are you using all the money you've got? Could you do with more? If there was, and I think they always could do with more. And I think we should be having more directed industrial strategy based around science, where you have institutions that are aimed at your goals. Catapults are a good example of them, and I think we should be funding them more. Thank you very much. Um, so before we go to questions from the floor, I'll pose a few of my own. Um, the first one I want to pick up, George, was your mention of devolution of responsibilities here. Um, and you made the powerful case that the circumstances of different science and innovation hubs in different parts of the country will be quite different. What they need, the barriers they face will be quite different and you need devolved responsibilities and power to tackle that. But you also talked about the fact that we may be in a situation where there's a great idea being developed in Cambridge, but it's really the northeast that, or the northwest that may be able to turn that into the reality of producing a new product. And I suppose my question to the panel is, how do we get this balance between devolving responsibilities and power and decision making down to address local issues at the same time as not losing that connection between different areas and facilitating that sort of transfer. Yeah, look, it's a really, I'm tempted to say, what a weird question, but I understand why you're asking it. I don't, by devolution, mean that the North East can't talk to the South East at all. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I, I start from the position of suggesting to you that a big part of this country's problem in political economy has been massive over-centralisation, massive over-bureaucratisation. We have a weirdly vertical political economy and successive governments have started to grip it properly. But it's really important. I happen to think it's the most important defining mission of this government. Boris was right to frame it in those terms. And I think the Prime Minister is trying to put the detail around the delivery on it. But I think levelling up is so is much more than it's characterised as being a sort of hanging baskets for red wall MPs. It's about a fundamental shift in this economy from a London South East service economy to a much more strategic science research innovation economy that goes all around the country. And it, my point is that if you really want to deliver that, there are some really important things that you need to do in government, set out a framework, tackle the hard issues, as we're trying to do much smarter procurement frame, frameworks, much smarter regulatory frameworks. Create the framework, but don't think that that alone is all that's required to allow those 20 or 30 clusters to really, really grow. And the reason, I mean, practically, I think there's a few specific things. There is a wall of money. I mean, tens, multiple tens of billions of investors right now who want to invest in the UK R&D economy. And we've made it really hard historically. You can back one company, well, it's great. But I want a world where you can ring up the Greater Manchester R&D Development Corporation and say, I'm from Mabadala or UAE or America or wherever. I want to put 400 million in for 10 years. I want to fund an institute, some fellowships. I want to fund some companies, a venture fund. 
And I think we've got to allow much more quickly regional leaders. If you've got a mayor, you've got a development corporation, they can buy up the land and make it happen. But actually, we should be doing it all around these clusters, making it much easier for investors. Whitehall has been really bad at that. Uh, secondly, it's the local leaders who will really understand Giles's point and Kath's point about ecosystems. And thirdly, actually, I think when you empower those leaders, what they'll start to play to is their particular strengths. And people in Cambridge, guess what? They're beginning to realize they don't have that expansion room for many. So what is Cambridge doing? It's come to Manchester. Uh, what is Imperial doing? It's going out. Into, so far from mitigating against collaboration, taking people off the delinquentizing dependency of a government announcement gives people the power to pick up the phone and make stuff happen. So it's not at all to prevent the networking. I think it'll be much more effective. And when Andy Burnham picks up the phone to Andy Street and says, listen, we have our political differences, but let's link much better our ecosystems, that's more likely to drive real transformation than a minister saying, let's make it happen. So I, I profoundly believe that devolution is part of innovation. If I could add to that, um, and I have another hat I wear, I'm the chair of a thing called the Western Gateway, which is the West of England and South Wales economic powerhouse, so a bit like uh, the Northern powerhouse, but we're a bit new, so I'll, another day I'll talk about that. Um, but it's interesting because competition is good in regionalisation, as well as ensuring that you're empathetic to the needs of other parts of the UK. So investment zones, for example, were part of the levelling up white paper, and I sit on the levelling up um, council and it's so important that the link as George was talking about earlier about the Whitehall linkages there that that works and a good example of that is um, ARMRC up in Rotherham recently they all put their shoulders to the wheel they've got the first investment zone in South Yorkshire and as a result of that they've got a huge investment from Boeing so Boeing were like the anchor company and that will bring a whole load of jobs to that part of Yorkshire. And I'm very proud that part of my catapult were also part of that. So what you, what you definitely need for big companies, SME slightly different, is to have the local area really campaigning and fighting. That, that's so powerful as, you know, having worked in a big company myself, if an area really fights to get you, it really helps. I think this competition can be a good thing. On SMEs, though, it is more challenging. We've done a lot of work recently on mapping SMEs and manufacturing, and I'm really embarrassed to admit we only touch 2% of all of SMEs across manufacturing, and we are on a mission. We're going to completely change that figure. And we do work with a lot, so it just shows how many there are. And they're all over the UK. So at the moment, we are now looking at South Wales. We do a lot of work in Northern Ireland. And as Giles very complimentary about catapults, lots of different regions, and I'm sure George has his ear bent everywhere he goes around the country, we want a catapult. And, you know, we're obviously trying to do what we can to work with partners. And so innovation centres can really help anchor investments as long as you get the region really fighting as well. Yeah, I mean, clearly playing to the strengths of different parts of, um, of the UK makes a lot of sense. Um, and we should absolutely do that. But we need to remember our competition is not between uh, the southeast, the southwest, and the northeast, and the northwest, or wherever. It's actually with China and the US uh, and the growing economies in Asia. So we should we have to work competitively but constructively. I guess that's my main my main plea, um, and um, and not let um, that uh, not not kind of let a dogmatic approach drive what we would like to see, which is a focus on. A positive outcomes and and dare I say excellence, uh, excellence in its broadest sense. So I think that would be something. If we can get if we can get the tension and balance right between those things, we we will do well. If I if I look back far enough in my own life when I was in industry, it, it wasn't always the case that um, a place-based agenda worked because people sort of had to find somewhere from their region and they weren't necessarily the right partner. Mm -hmm. So I think you you you've done well. It clearly adds value. But we need to take care that we do it well. That's my, my main my main comment. Thank you. Uh, can I say, uh, Gemma, I, I do sympathise with the question because when <coughs> we were trying to develop industrial strategy under Theresa May, we asked local areas, in, at that time it was local enterprise partnerships, which yes. I think have ceased to exist, yes. each to have their own local industrial strategy. And we realised immediately we've also got a national industrial strategy. And we remember being told stories of the RDAs um, 
that they would each of them have competing expos at Shanghai and each be trying to develop their own nanotechnology centre. And that there was still a central coordinating role. And it's very easy to sort of kick the treasury and sort of blame them for worrying about value for money. But if they see two or three different places all competing together to try to have the same asset, they'll say this is a need for centralising um, coordinating mechanisms. So I think it would be a problem that would be solved if the government sticks to the same very clear industrial strategy and makes the messaging to the local areas clear. But you, there will still sometimes need to be some arbitration at the centre if they're worried that everybody's going to be just scrambling after the same small resources. And I don't think we should evade that that is a dilemma of devolution. skills as being an important part of this mix, both attracting from abroad and developing at home. I just wanted to start perhaps with Nigel, since you um, started on this question, whether you could spell out a little bit more what you think is needed to develop those at home and attract them from abroad. Is this just visas or is it more about? Okay, so so I think there's a, there's a number of things. So for, firstly, let's talk about the funding of higher education in the UK. Um, I, can, I can give you the numbers from my own institution, but it will vary in different places. But delivering a world-class STEM-based education at Imperial College, uh, we lose £4,800 a year for ed every home student that we teach. In other words, it does not meet the full cost of that education. So that's quite a lot of money to lose. Uh, I would also note, of course, that government, uh, so research council funding also, by design, does not meet the full cost of the research it funds. So we lose money on all of our research council funded research and we lose a lot of money on educating home students. We're very happy to educate home students for the UK, but let's not forget that. That is all underwritten by educating international students who pay a significantly large fee for coming and gaining their education. So we, should, we absolutely should celebrate and welcome those super talented students from all over the world that come and choose to study here in the UK because of the strength of our, our university system. Um, but there's something wrong in there. So it would be, I think one of the things for us to be thinking about is how do we actually properly fund um, STEM-based education in the UK um, so that we don't have to have this tension and balance and also how do we properly fund um, the research council type uh, or innovate funding um, that comes into the academic sector. Um, so, that, so that's one thing. Um, then, then of course it's about how do we uh, ensure that we are uh, as attractive a place to come for those uh, for that talent, whether that's uh, talent from within the UK uh, choosing to go to university for the first time, and that's an inc that that really sits with us as an academic sector, I think, to make certain that we are reaching out to as a diverse uh, a popular pool of uh, talent that we can, but also for our international students coming from abroad, that the UK is attractive, and that's around visas, uh, not only to get into the UK but also for post uh, study. Work and I, you know, I think the system at the moment is working okay. It's proving to be quite expensive for students uh, to get those visas. It'd be great to see the cost of that addressed, and of course, it would be great to see that expanded, because we do attract super talented, motivated uh, uh, people to come study here in the UK who build an affinity for us as a country, and it would be lovely to retain as many of those as possible uh, within our. Um, industrial or commercial base, or indeed in our research base. So I, so those are the two areas, I'd, three areas probably I'd, I'd focus on. Thank you. Well, I could completely echo what Nigel said, and I was talking to David Willits about this last night. When he was in <coughs> my role, he was also Minister for Universities. So I'm responsible for all university research, but I'm not the Minister of Universities. Rob Halfon at DfE is Minister of Universities and, and Skills. And I mean, there's no perfect government structure, but the truth is that over the last 10 or so years, our universities are having to subsidize UK teaching with overseas students and R&D has suffered. And that is not a sustainable basis for achieving our ambitions as a, as a, uh, as a global science superpower. So I, um, that's a real issue. And there are two points I'd make quickly. One is um, uh, on international talent and I, I just want to be very clear about this. We cannot be a global science superpower behind a visa uh, paywall. It is absolutely fundamental that we're able to attract the best people, export the best people. And that's why, as I've defined science superpower, I've very explicitly defined it as one world-class science. You, can't, you mustn't take your eye off the excellence. Uh, two, for global impact, not just studying problems, solving them. 
developing rapidly fusion energy, um, developing mRNA and next generation life sciences, harnessing bioengineering for, you know, for global impact. Uh, three, talent. In a world where China's at 260 billion a year R&D, America 300 billion a year plus the 400 billion Inflation Reduction Act, we're going to 20 billion a year. Great. That's 52 billion over three years. Fantastic. It'd better be the best 52 billion, 20 billion a year in the world. We'd better be tipping it into a Formula One engine. And UKRI and the ecosystem's most staunch defenders wouldn't pretend it's, an e it's a Formula One engine. We need to be putting microliters of money into a Formula One engine that turns it into terabytes of thrust. We're not there. It's too slow, too bureaucratic. And so I, in that, one of the things you can do if you want to be a superpower on a shoestring is get the best people here early. And if they come here early, early in their career, they'll fall in love with something somewhere or someone or possibly all three. Um, and actually universities have been doing this for ages. UEA, a lot of people discover Windy Norfolk at UEA and then stay. So universities are good at this, but it is really key. And I just mentioned, I've, some of you have been in other meetings today, our most successful entrepreneur in the UK, the only person who started 11 com companies all worth over a billion, came as a student. It's called Hermann Hauser. He's an Austrian student. By the way, he didn't come with a flag saying, I'm going to start 11 companies worth. He just came yeah. and fell in love with Cambridge. Um, so it's pretty important. You don't know who these people are. Um, they've always been the lifeblood of our innovation ecosystem. And, um, you know, I'm really proud we're back in Horizon. But I just make the point, um, students need to be able to exchange. Researchers need to be able to travel. And that's why I've gone straight to Germany, France, and Italy to negotiate big R&D agreements with secondment programs in them. Um, you know, in the end, if we're going to be a connected ecosystem, we have to be a hub of global talent. Just on the skills side, so the manufacturers we work with, as I mentioned, we're a gauge for manufacturing temperature. Um, they really struggle to get the people they need. Um, when we were first set up, we weren't intended to be dealing with skills, but of course, foresighting on technology has to go along 100% with skills foresighting as well. So have we got the right talent coming down the road? So we've been putting a lot of resource into that recently and a lot of our companies have asked us to. We actually train uh, 1,200 apprentices a year across our seven centres. Again, not something that would probably have been imagined when we were first set up. So it's what we also call foresighting for sunrise industries. So hydrogen, for example, I see a colleague here from the amazing new company, Zero Avia, who are doing a load of work on hydrogen in aviation. Have we got the right talent? Don't know, can you answer that question? <laughs> have we got the right people to work with you? skills with propulsion as well yeah. engineering skills we've had some we've actually had some phenomenal uh, interns come from imperial hugely impressive doing amazing things and you know possibly doing their own startups in the future um yeah i mean i, I think that the, the challenge is as we look towards manufacturing and growing our, our um, operations and yeah it, it is a really difficult part of the business to get the right people in Thank you. So that wasn't a real setup. I just was giving yeah. an example of the sunrise industries that we're having to look ahead for. What are the talent we need? And also there's people coming through school now who wouldn't immediately think of manufacturing as a career. We have to ensure that we open up. It was National Manufacturing Day last last Friday. So we made sure Thursday. So we made sure we opened up our centres and got school kids in and they can see that, you know, um, George very kindly opened our new centre up at CPI last week. Um, weeks ago um, and you know it's a lab it's amazing there's things you can do you can help you know with future vaccines and, and incredible contributions to the UK in the future so that's the area we play in the skills um, agenda and absolutely agree there's still a lot of work to be done if I may say keeping on the Formula One sort of analogy um, we're slightly not in the pits we're on the hard shoulder a bit there's a lot of work to be done and it it's only can be done by working together more closely and if, if I can add one point of um, agreement and one slightly spikier one, um, the agreement one, all praise to Herman Hauser. I think it was a um, report Peter Mandelson commissioned out of him that led to the catapults. And that's, you know, cross-government work. Science doesn't really need to be political, in my view. The spiky one is overseas students are happily paying a high multiple of our tuition fee to come and study here. And anyone who believes in markets, therefore, can see that we have a market price that is very heavily suppressed here. 
we've been freezing that fee for ages. We need politically to find a way through. We cannot have a thriving university <laughs> sector with underpriced education. And the politicians have to face that at some point. We need more money coming in through the tuition fee system. Thank you very much. So going to questions from the audience, please put your hand up. We'll take you in a batch of a few. So let's take the lady at the front. Hi, Laura Williams from Cancer Research UK. So we're spending uh, £1.5 billion pounds in this five-year period. Um, so when we're talking about investment, um, great to be able to talk about charity funded as well as um, public and private, um, as well as the people. And it's brilliant to hear all the comments. And thank you. Thank you on Horizon. I'm going to have to say that first. Heartfelt thanks. Um, but we don't just need the people. Uh, we need the stuff be really technical so um, at the moment um, we're hearing a lot of stories from scientists that they they just can't get the stuff um, whether that's discovery um, scientists with you know kits stuck in Belgium and having to you know build in delays at every stage whether it's clinical trials so you know our, our um, world-leading pediatric clinical trials unit in Birmingham finding that their partners in Paris that they've been working with for 20 30 years are you know it's costing four times the amount um, of money to send the drug to Birmingham for the child you know this is real world stuff this is this is children with cancer in the UK not getting access to treatments that they they should be getting because we can't open um, arms of trials so I want to be really clear though you know America is still like the number one um, place for global collaboration from our scientists perspective um, but we, we've got to still think about how we get stuff to and from the EU so any reflections would be great there. Oh yeah thanks um it was really welcome to hear uh, George uh, talking about speeding up Whitehall. Um, I see I work in the farm sector, and I think from my perspective... Um, you say farm or farmer? Farmer, farmer, yeah. So uh, I, from my perspective, um, I think uh, what was really welcome with, with COVID is how quickly regulators got on board and were able to fast-track things through. Gradually, I'm seeing that the MHRA in particular is kind of moving back into their old routines and um, I'm just wondering what you see uh, as a way of I suppose modernising it and uh, trying to get it to be as flexible as the FDA really which is uh, very good. On that front. And take David your question as well. Thanks. Um, uh, Minister George, uh, your remark about services at the beginning, so I agree with you. By the way, it's wonderful to have a minister who's so enthusiastic about, enthusiastic about science. But on the service industry, it seems to be there's two counts. One is, it's a good site for innovation. Like, mm -hmm. you know, coal mines and innovation from low tech just pull stuff out of the ground. So it'd be odd not to apply it beyond the kind of white or blue coat into areas where we're already strong. And I think we have a bit of a mental block. And the second reason is Giles' point, which is that, you know, we have a well established. <laughs> issues around valley of death, which catapults stuff into, but we have a secondary valley of death, which is really serious, which is the adoption or use of technology. But now back of the envelope estimate is we could roughly double UK productivity growth if we solve, you know, just some of the shrouding issues around the, you can't tell what's good or bad in many sectors. So I just feel like, I mean, it's worth maybe coming back. I think a lot of issues to deal with right now DSIP, but this is one where I think actually it's an opportunity rather than necessary challenge. David, can you just say I'm sorry, are? David Halper from the Behavioural Insights Team, often known as the Nudge Unit. Great. Thank you very much. Um, George, I'll come to you first, please. Yeah, so look, uh, two questions on life science and trials and, and one on adoption. Um, uh, so clinical trials, I mean, the, the pandemic was, the discovery of the vaccine was great, but to me, the biggest win of all was the NHS put together the world's biggest and fastest clinical trial. It was bigger than the next 10 put together in months. It was the most extraordinary achievement. So for all the agony of the NHS being 467 organizations and the adoption challenge, when there's an emergency, when it moves, it really moves. And it's all the more disappointing then that clinical trials fell back 44% in the last two years, which is why when I returned to the life science portfolio this spring, the chancellor, I and other ministers had got together, we announced, um, 650 million pound package to implement the James O'Shaughnessy report in full in May and he's made a whole batch of really important recommendations. This isn't just getting back to where we were by the way because we've signed multi-billion pound R&D agreements with Moderna and BioNTech and others which will require about 50,000 people to go into trials. So um, this is really urgent and we're on it. 
the big challenge, I think, is in the NHS, the National Institute of Health Research, so the NHS is, what, 120 billion odd a year, drug budget 15 billion, 1.3 billion every year goes to the National Institute for Health Research, which is the, what it says, and it's underpinning the NHS, it's clinical trials units. And the NIHR gets 300 million a year, has done for 10 years to do trials. And they're academic. We're not leaning in properly to get industry trials here. And that is completely key. And it's completely key for both leveling up. The single biggest way to give people around this country access to innovative medicines is to get them into trials. By the way, in clinical trials, industry provides the drugs. What industry wants us to do is provide a faster runway, quicker data. And if we don't grip this, we, we, we cannot rely on us paying the highest price. We will never pay the highest price. I've been very clear with the pharma industry. The NHS will never, can never pay the highest price. So we better have a compelling USP and it is quicker access into the right patients, data, come here. And that's why we launched the Accelerated Access Review. We set up Genomics England. We set up the Phenotypic Database and Biobank. Come here to work out who your drugs will work best in. And by coming in early and getting that data, you get them into the UK quicker. So it's utterly key uh, that we deliver that. Um, the NHRA have been through a tough time post-pandemic for all sorts of reasons. We're backing June hard. We've just given her a slug more money, but more importantly, um, backed her in all the stuff she needs. Uh, the MHRA is a massive asset to this country. When I was Minister for Life Science, the FDA, uh, it's interesting, you, I drove across to the FDA campus. It's about the size of Texas. There's a kind of digital bit, there's a food bit, a drug bit, a device bit. I sat down with Jonathan Mogford and one official, 28 people from the FDA and Maggie Hamblin, the legendary chair. And she said, welcome minister to the FDA. And I said, well, thank you, Maggie, it's lovely to be here. I tell you what I'm thinking is in a world of convergence where drugs become digital, send their own pharmacokinetic profile back, when stents are drug delivery devices that are digital, how are you gonna legislate, regulate in a world of technology convergence? And she said, minister, that is precisely the challenge looking down at the table that we are facing. The truth is they are gripping it. And one of my missions at DSIT is to create these regulatory test beds, which we're doing through the seven life science missions, so that we don't try and make the best everywhere. We, we shape with the regulators what the next generation of uh, gene-edited medicines, mRNA medicines are, and we create those lit runways and shape the regulatory framework in Europe. And that, that is real, and we're doing it, but we need to do it because in the global race for investment, Getting that quicker adoption piece in to the right targeted group is our key USP. Catherine, I could see you nodding away around regulation. <laughs> well, I'd just like to say, I mean, I'm sure there's more that um, my catapults and others can do to work with charities such as yourselves. I know we've got two catapults we do specialise in the pharma side, so I'm sure there's links there. But um, I can't comment particularly on the EU border problem. Sorry about that. Um, I do, I'm just on the adoption issue, I mean, productivity is an issue, and you, it depends how you measure it, of course, if economists are in the room, um, get different answers. But um, I think the whole thing I would say is collaboration is the name of the game. I mean, there are many companies who are just a bit scared about innovating, and this is why we talk about de-risking innovation. They can come and learn from us, maybe if they're thinking about buying a new machine or robot, they can come and have a look on our, on our demonstrator areas and think, well, actually, that could work, and our, our teams will work with them. So that's all about how we can persuade people to take the leap if they've come up with a great idea, and then that helpfully helps with further adoption. So demonstrators, digital twins, another area that uh, we're doing a lot of work on with many other organisations, all of these can help build up the productivity, but we absolutely recognise that, and it's probably another one, a wicked challenge that we need to set ourselves. I always make the point about NHS uptake because it's a massive issue and it's if we don't tackle the NHS's ability to pull through innovation it'll bankrupt us and drive innovators away and it's actually although net zero I think David and the behavioral insights people are, that's a real challenge actually in the NHS it's incentives we don't incentivize people to deliver more for less if you do deliver more for less we give you less <coughs> so we are functionally structurally culturally and financially rewarding failure mm -hmm. and if you try and improve your care pathway which is the key to adopting innovation you find there are endless barriers mm -hmm. so we get micro innovation a brilliant nurse a brilliant doctor a brilliant yeah. hospital woman will change a little thing in their lab but changing the diabetes pathway for example requires huge effort across 467 organizations that is a massive problem because we're spawning the research but we're not pulling it through and it's not sustainable
Roger. Yeah, George, I mean, I absolutely agree, first of all. So I'm not a clinician, I'm an engineer, but we have a very big medical school and a lot of clinical yeah. practice. And exactly all I hear in that space is there is no incentive to um, innovate. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is we talk about pharma, but also the UK is extremely strong in med tech. Mm. And um, it's another area where I, I just would, the, the, the more we can do to make certain that any rate, which is a, a sector where regulations matter a lot, uh, and just a request wherever possible that we align our regulations with those of others wherever possible. If the UK goes down a pathway of, of unique regulations, there's a very real chance that no med tech products will be developed for the UK because we're just too small a market relative to the large markets in the US and elsewhere. So alignment of regulation with others um, is actually extremely important as, as an enabler uh, for UK innovation, um, particularly uh, in that sort of sector. Thank you. Try to squeeze in one further round of questions. Um, let's go to sorry, the lady on the aisle, the hand up before, um, the lady here and the lady by the wall. Sorry. Hi there, Lainey Mathers from the University of Nottingham. Um, I'm interested, we've obviously spoken a little bit about the um, levelling up funding and um, I wonder if there's not just a bit of a perfect storm gathering where we might find that far from doing more to help innovation out in our areas, that actually some of the routes to doing that innovation work and to being universities that reach out to support our areas are closing down. So levelling up, you said, Minister, that it's sort of not about hanging baskets, but we found it increasingly difficult to engage as universities, particularly in an area where um, UK SPF funding, for example, went down to district council level, the money that was announced yesterday is, is very much about towns and some of those areas and not coming to the big institutions like universities at the same time as we've spoken about. Um, we're all facing a cost of living crisis, inflation is rising, the, the full economic cost of teaching and research is not being met. And so some of the discretionary things that we have done for a lot of years and that have been really core to our place in growing our region are shrinking and I, I just wonder if maybe we're, we're sort of missing or we're going to be blindsided by something coming down the route where actually universities start to do less of some of the things that we have been doing and that becomes a problem and I wonder we're about to do a devolution deal um, fingers crossed in the East Midlands and I wonder if there's a way that we could be embedding innovation more in what government's asking of those devolution deals. Rosa Wilkinson from the High Valley Manufacturing Cape, uh, Catapult. I, it's a question inspired by the cancer research question, actually. Um, and I just wonder whether we have reached a moment when what we need to do is to map the sovereign capabilities that we need here within the UK, and then to use that to drive some of our science and our innovation in ways which will help us with the levelling up agenda. I think within COVID and actually in years since, we've learned that in certain areas we are very weak within the UK and that leaves us uh, with very low levels of resilience. Do we need to boost them? Thank you. And final question. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. My name is Anderona Cole and I work for GIST. Um, I've been sitting here and reflecting on George's comments about expertise within the civil service and also um, comments around regulation. And what I'm seeing, I mean, this may not be the picture um, from other people's perspectives, but what I'm seeing is um, increasingly big tech having something of a voice when it comes to regulation. And I was wondering if I could get um, opinions from, from panelists, if, um, say, for instance, academia could have more of a voice on things, you know, say, for instance, we could have, and I haven't spoken to Nigel about this, but we could have um, researchers from the, um, from Imperial talking about ethics in AI, that kind of thing. To what extent do you see academia or academics having a voice or a part to play in this conversation? Because increasingly, what we need to be seen is a country that's really malleable when it comes to regulation, because otherwise, um, big tech or larger technology organisations are going to look to China, America, and so on. So if um, people feel comfortable on commenting on that, I'd really appreciate perspectives. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. Um, Nigel, shall I come to Okay, thank you for the question. Um, I mean, just to comment on, on, the, on the philosophy. So a university is a great place for convening ideas and, and a great place for sharing ideas. That's what universities are actually largely about. So I would very much hope that we would um, we would, I, I think we would welcome the opportunity to contribute to that debate. I think we need to uh, 
be part of that conversation. We shouldn't pretend we're the only voice in that conversation, but it would certainly be um, important. I think as an, as an, uh, if I was to then say to the university sector, of course, one also needs to recognize, reward, uh, and, and, um, and motivate colleagues to engage in those parts of those conversations as well. So that's an internal issue for us as an academic community. How do we do that? But I think it, it, it's incumbent on us actually to be part of that conversation and part of that debate. So I very much, I think, speaking for my institution, and I suspect many others, I think we'd be very, we'd very much welcome the opportunity to contribute. George, you said earlier about secondments into government um, departments. I think that's a really interesting idea to explore, perhaps in a bit more detail as well. So thank you very much. Yeah, three great questions. Uh, on your your description, I recognise it completely, and I'm very exercised by it and insisting in DCIT that we're not just the AI department, we're the department for regional R&D, regional clusters, regional innovation economies. Um, uh, listen to the speech tomorrow. And um, I think Horizon's been great for the really strong research intensive universities. There's a group, I'm thinking of the Nottingham's, the Northumbria's, the, um, the Hulls, the less, you know, the universities that are very embedded in their economies are doing really good translational engineering work. They're not the most research intensive, but they're absolutely key to regional economies. And I, I think we need to do more for those. And I'm looking at the formula for how we allocate money. I absolutely don't want to undermine the golden triangle. It's golden for a really big reason. But there's a, there's a sort of argument in academic funding that excellence is built on mediocrity. I disagree. And I, I think the funding, we need to be funding excellence, academic excellence, and industrial impact and signaling really loud and clear that that's what we're going to reward and i um so i i hear loud and clear uh rosa on the um sovereign coordination yeah completely look the data it hasn't been properly mapped out of the pandemic is that this country had a brilliant pandemic in discovering vaccines and a terrible pandemic in public health about twenty thousand people died more than should have because of deep entrenched health inequalities not least up in the northwest male life expectancy in Glasgow is what sort of half what it is in you know wealthy London and there's a huge challenge about sovereign capability resilience and that is actually what the life science strategy next 10 years is all about it's um, eight missions focused on chronic diseases that are bankrupting the NHS and causing misery and low productivity in our workforce so it's a big shift we're making from pharma to population health and harnessing med tech and others in those missions there they're each led by a Kate Bingham type figure, charities focused on patients and chronic diseases. So, I mean, we probably have more to do, but we have recognized that's key. And on, um, and your point is really well made. I mean, one of the challenges on tech is to embed it in the values of this country. And so on uh, patient data, for example, I think it's really important that we recognize the patient, the data belongs to the patients. Mm -hmm. We're here to serve the patients doesn't belong to the NHS, it doesn't belong to the Department of Health. And uh, uh, we need to frame our science and tech within ethics and morals. And Baroness Warnock did it for embryology. It's lasted, it's passed the test, and that's what this year's AI Summit is about. And it is crucial that universities who are able to draw on a whole range of disciplines, social sciences, humanities, can bring that to bear. If this is just an agenda for big tech, it'll fail, not least because big tech themselves have said to us, help us. We are losing this and they need the richness of a UK regulatory leadership. So I completely agree and I hope that I'm sure that our top universities will all be at the AI Summit and are in, involved in this regulatory work. Yeah. I think just to encourage Nottingham University to keep buggering on, you know, keep going with the negotiations locally. Don't don't do less and I'd say that to any sort of education institution because you are absolutely the anchor certainly in the regions that I know well and I completely understand how you must be feeling I do hope the devolution deal works because I know that the, I know the leveling up department wants it to I think the only other comment I would make is on the academia having more involvement in innovation um, for me 
probably because of the world I live in, I would immediately think, who is the expert on this topic if mm. a new topic comes up? Um, just hearing the news this morning, you know, about water bills going up. I've been asked to um, go and do some work with Exeter University on a water project. And I'm like, that is where I'm going to go to find out my information. I worry that people just go, just Google, you know, I love Google, but, you know, they don't actually go. And that's another sort of, you know, <coughs> crown jewels we have in this country. Um, the other thing I do is the government's asked me to chair a task and finish group on critical minerals and you know really you need to know where are the ac academic experts on that so I would encourage us all we need to raise the profile of academic institutions and events like this do that thank you <clears throat> very very quick ones um on Ro on first on Rosa's points there yeah I agree we should do we should be less ashamed of just doing the work to work out what we're good at and what we're not good at you will still get two awkward types of people coming back at you one the politician saying we might be not good at this now but capabilities are dynamic can we not become good at it for example i would argue not even as a politician we may not be very good at building high-speed rail but we should become good rather than give up um and two you the other awkward bunch of people uh our economists who'll say does this mean where do we trade and where do we make because you cannot do everything as a country like this and so our robustness is also having other people we can draw on to get the thing because we won't be able to get everything here or make everything here. I, I would just also add, I, I strongly agree that we could do with more academic voice in policy making. I think it's something where we are weak compared to the United States in particular, where professors, I think, will cycle through the policy making process. I think we've done very well not to mention AI much to this point. The Frontier Task Force that's set up by DSIP, which has got real cutting edge academic brilliance in the AI field, actually in the government, helping to assure the sort of quality of models and so forth. That sort of thing is, brilliant and unusual and we should be looking to try and do more of that. Thanks very much um, and apologies for slightly overrunning but thank you for sticking with us. Um, really huge thanks to all our panellists, to Nigel, George, Catherine and Giles. It's been great, thank you to all of you. Uh, do come along to the rest of our events that are happening, you've got flyers on your sheets, hopefully see you again. Thanks, Thanks.